<clears throat> well, I want you to think for a moment about the family that you grew up in. And maybe for you, you grew up in a family, and, and for you, your memories of family and family dinner or holidays are great memories. Or maybe for you, the memories that you have of your family were, were hard memories. Maybe you remember empty seats, you remember uh, broken promises, you remember maybe a lot of silence at your family dinner. Maybe you remember a lot of fighting at your family dinner. Sarcasm was maybe a love language of your family growing up. But all of us have experiences in our family, and, and, and for all of us, our families are different. For some of us, your family was emotionally close. For others, your family was emotionally distant. For some of you, you heard from your parents on a regular basis how proud they were of you, how much they loved you, they hugged you, they kissed you, they were affectionate towards you. And for others, you got a handshake. It was a little bit colder, a little bit distant, a little bit further away. I want you to think, as you sit around your table as a child, and maybe if you're a student today, you can think about your family right now, were there any topics that you weren't allowed to talk about at the dinner table? Was there anything that was just off limits in your family? Maybe there was a person in your family you didn't talk about. There was a situation you didn't talk about. Maybe you've learned over the years, especially in our political season, that you've just learned, you know what, at the dinner table, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about anything that happened on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, nothing. We pretend that there are no elections at all just to keep the peace. But that shapes you. That experience shapes you. For some of us, we grew up in families where there's just things we're not allowed to ask. There's things that we're not allowed to talk about because we don't talk about that in this family. See, the thing is, is that as we get older, many of us actually disregard what happened in the family we grew up in. We actually think it's not a big deal, many of us think. But the thing is, is that sitting around that dinner table, night in and night out, or if you didn't sit around that dinner table night in and night out, that shaped you. The messages that your parents sent and the messages that you received are not always the same thing, but the messages that you take have shaped you in terms of how you interact with people of the opposite sex, people of different ages, and how you interact with people who are a nuisance to you. See, and this is important. If you think back to the message that your parents sent, now you would say it's the message that your parents sent, but really it's the message that you received. Because those are not always the same. This is really important. The message that your parents sent is not always the message that you received. Okay? But growing up, you learned, and this has impacted you in the workplace, You've learned how to think about work. You've learned how to think about gender. You've learned how to think about relationships, about money. And all of that went back to sitting around that dinner table. And here's why this is important. You might go, what does this have to do with widows and older men and older women and younger women? And what does this have to do with that? See, one of the things that we see throughout the New Testament, we saw this in 1 Timothy 3, is where Paul writes and he says the church is to be the family of God. The church is to be the household of God. Okay, So when we gather together, when we sit in our community groups, when we do events like Trunk or Treat, when we come in here on a Sunday morning, we are the family of God. We are the household of God. And the way that we interact with each other, we learned how to do that in our family of origins a long time ago. And we come in and we bring all of our pictures of relationships of what we think relationships should be like to the church. 
And, and so if you trust people, it's really easy for you to jump into a community group. It doesn't have anything to do with that. You're just like, yeah, well, this is what you do. If you grew up and you were taught that you're supposed to have a service mindset and duty, you jump into a team and you're like, all right, this is what we do. But if you grew up in a family where you learned you couldn't trust people, then you go, I don't wanna be in, a, I don't wanna be in community with people. Every time it gets your turn to be a prayer request, you're like, I, it's unspoken for me again. Just, I, I'm not ready to share. And, and you hold back, you hold back. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about, as we think about the church being irresistible. The reason that I think the church is resistible in our culture, one of the main reasons is because we don't do community well. We don't do relationships well. And so because we don't do relationships well, and side note, our culture also doesn't do relationships well. So because we don't do relationships well, we don't look any different than our culture. In fact, if you have ever left a church, you have probably left the church because of some kind of hurt, some kind of thing you didn't deal with, some kind of relational rift, something that didn't go right. But I think if the church can get relationships right, if the church can get community right, and if the church can understand the interplay of actual friendships and community between men and women in our culture, I think the church could be irresistible. Now here's what I mean, especially about men and women. Think about our cultural moment for a moment. Men and women. Do you feel empowered as a man or a woman in our culture? Do you feel encouraged? Do you feel like you even know what you're supposed to be? As you interact at work, do you even know where, how to interact with, with the opposite sex in a way that is honoring? See, in our cultural moment, many people have no idea. Most men have no idea how to interact with a woman in a way that's honoring to them. Most people who are younger have no idea how to interact with people who are older than them. Most people who are older aren't really sure how to interact with people who are younger than them because they don't understand any of the words that they use. Right? I mean, just watch any of those reels about, you know, Phrases, even as a parent of four teenagers, I'm constantly going, what does that word even mean? I have no idea what's, did you just insult me? Did you swear? I don't know. Like, and, and we don't know. And, and recently I was talking to a guy in his 60s in our church, and he said, Josh, he said, I just don't know how to talk to people in their 20s and 30s. I don't even know where I would start. And so what happens then is that we don't actually start then because we don't want to fumble our way through. And so Paul tells us, after laying out, now here's, here's how this fits, and you might go, well, I still don't see how this gets to being irresistible. Here's the thing. Paul was writing to a church that was trying to bring the gospel into a pluralistic culture like we've talked about, exactly like ours in the city of Ephesus, one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. And they were a city that, that worshiped Artemis that had very little to do with the God of the Bible. And as Paul writes them, he's saying, hey, this is how you bring the gospel to bear, and you do that through relationships. And here's how I know you do that through relationships. If you're here today, the reason that you came today or came for the very first time was probably because somebody invited you. Most people show up at church because someone invited them. That's why most people show up at church. Most people don't show up at church because they do a Google search 
Most people don't show up at church because they drove by a sign, although that does happen. Most people show up at church because somebody said, hey, come to church with me. Come sit with me. We'll go out to lunch afterwards. I'll feed you. It'll be great. Just come. That's the power of relationships. Also, if you've left a church, there's a good chance you left the church because a friend of yours that you were close to left the church first. That's the power of relationships. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, how the church is actually supposed to relate to each other. And this is what he says in verse one. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now remember, the context of this, remember in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says the church is to be the family of God to conduct itself as the household of God. And this is one of the reasons that we talk often about the power and the importance of intergenerational relationships of being with people who are not your age. Because the church is supposed to be the place where we experience brother and sister relationships, where we experience spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Why? Because for many people, they grew up and they did not have a good earthly father and mother and they need somebody older to say, hey, let me tell you what happens if you make this decision. Like men, like men need somebody who's in front of them to say, hey, like let me tell you what happens if you go down this road. Women need somebody that says, hey, let me tell you what happens in this ditch. Because here's the thing, if I get together with, with a bunch of people my age in their 40s and they have teenagers and we're all just bemoaning teenagers, we're complaining, we're just like griping at each other as parents do, do you know what none of us can tell the other person. None of us can tell the other person what actually works. No one can say, hey, Josh, let me tell you, if you do this, this will work. No one can say that, why? Because we're all as dumb as each other. We all know as little as each other. Like, I don't know what it's like to move from high school into college and young adulthood and launching out my kids. I have guesses. I have fewer guesses now that they're closer to it. Like when they were three, I had lots of ideas about what it was like, and they're all wrong. So what I need and, and what, what Katie and I have placed in our life are people who are steps in front of us, people who have launched their kids successfully. We need people in our lives who have gone past the 25 and 30 year mark of marriage to say, hey, this is, this is what it's like when you get older. This is what it's like when you hit middle age. This is what it's like. In the same way, when you're, in your, when you're 18, 22, 25, you need people who say, hey, like, this is how you get to the next part. If you have toddlers, you're gonna, you'll sleep again sometime. And one day, yes, they're defiant now. And guess what, they'll be defiant as teenagers. They'll just be bigger. But take heart, right? Like, I, we need people, one of the things that we constantly hear from people who have launched their kids is, is they'll tell us the teen years are the funnest years of parenting and the fastest. We were told that when, when our oldest became a teenager, and it's made us try to think through, okay, how do we make sure we don't miss the moments? But here's the thing is that those kind of relationships take work. They don't just happen. 
And like the person in his 60s who said, I don't know how to talk to 20s and 30-year-olds, is they're not naturally as much fun. Right? They're not naturally as much fun. But they are rewarding and needed. And here's the thing. Let me, I want to say something to people who are over 50 in our church. Okay, this is really important. Because a lot of times, the older you get, you start to think, well, I just don't really have anything to offer anybody else. Like, I'm just older. Like, who wants to hang out with me? I'm, you know, I'm curmudgeon I'm this, I'm that. Like, what do I... People in their teens and 20s will always gravitate towards the oldest person who will take them seriously. Always. I spent a decade doing student ministries, and every single time I have talked to somebody who is in middle school, high school, and college, and I've said, hey, is this true? They've said, yep. They will always gravitate towards the oldest person who will take them seriously. And, and for our church, some of you are supposed to be spiritual fathers and mothers, and you're not, and you need to be. And you need to step up, and you need to step into those places because that's what the household of God is supposed to be. It, and that's not just an age thing. Sometimes that's a maturity thing. That's a spiritual maturity thing where you're further than somebody along in your spiritual journey, and you need to say, hey, th this is how you read the Bible. This is how you pray. This is why we give back to God. This is why this matters. And you're teaching those things. And you do that just through everyday life. I remember when we first planted a church in Tucson, we had three young kids, and our church was filled with college-age students and young adults, and they would always ask Katie and I, like, hey, can we grab coffee? And we just said, yeah, like, well, you know, Katie's response was, well, I gotta, I gotta go to Costco, so you can just come and walk with me. And, and she would just walk through Costco with like two or three, you know, college-age girls just asking them questions and talking and doing life. Like, it doesn't have to be a special thing. You know, people say to me, hey, can we hang out? I'm like, yeah, like every Friday night, I'm standing on a football sideline, so come and hang out. Just bring people along into life with you. Whatever it is that you're doing. And he says exhort them. And here's why that word exhort is to urge them forward. And the reason I think he says that we need to exhort older men and older women is because the older you get, the less energy you have, the more likely you are to give up, the more likely you are to think that your life has just run its course and God is done with you and he just wants the younger people. And Paul says, no, no, exhort them to say, step up. They're not done. They're not finished. And again, the church is to be this place of the household of God of intergenerational relationships. And then he says to treat the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, he's writing this to Timothy, who's in his 20s, but he's writing this to the whole church. And he's saying that men and women are to interact and treat each other as brothers and sisters. And over the last several years, I mean, as we've watched our culture, this is something that, that is just blown up in our culture, whether it's through the Me Too movement or the Church Too movement and people sharing their stories of abuse and harassment against people of power. And the church has not done a good job at this. The church has story after story, just like the rest of the culture, where people go, they're not any different. Imagine, imagine if the church was a place that was actually safe. 
Imagine if the church was a place where women didn't walk in and feel like they were a sex object or have to stand up to something or to do this or to do that. Imagine if it was a safe place of being brothers and sisters. Now, here's the thing about brothers and sisters, okay? And if you're not picking up on the picture yet of the family and the household of God, families are messy. Families are difficult. There's always at least one person at the family table that's that person that you wish didn't come to the family dinner. And there's a chance that there's somebody in your group that you're like, you know what, the group would be great if they just stayed home tonight. And if you don't think that about your group, you're the person. But that's, that's okay. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. is we come to church, we come to church and expect relationships to be easy. I remember one time a woman came to me and she said, hey, like I'm leaving my group. I'm like, oh, did something happen? She's like, yeah, it's just really hard. Well, what's really hard? You know, it's just really hard to talk to them. And like, you know, it's just, I, you know, Josh, I thought I was just gonna show up. We're gonna eat together. It's gonna just like, it was gonna flow. It's gonna be amazing because the Holy Spirit's there. And so it's just gonna be like heavens parted. And like, that didn't happen. And I said, well, did the heavens ever part at your family table growing up? Well, no, no, for sure not. Okay, well, so we have to have a realistic picture of what community is gonna be like. And in brothers and sisters, if you have siblings, there's always one favorite kid in the family. Maybe you were it. Maybe you're related to the favorite kid of the family. There's always a sibling that's a little bit harder to love, a sibling that's a little bit more of a dark, you know, sheep of the family, makes bad choices. Does this sound like church community? Yes. This is what it's supposed to be like. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to be loud as you sit around the table. There's kids climbing on the table and disrupting things. But here's the thing, too, that happens in the midst of those disruptions as kid makes noise and breaks this thing in the house and, you know, the, the couple that host the group is super stressed out because they fought before, the, before everybody showed up and the vacuum cleaner stopped working and the kids weren't listening. And, you know, but here's what happens. Is all of those kids, every single one of them, walk in and they watch adults live out the family of God. And they see and they grow up and they go, hey, this, this is normal. Community is normal. Sitting shoulder to shoulder is normal. Sharing our requests with each other and bearing our burdens with each other is normal. And as they grow up, they go, that's what relationships are supposed to look like. And then they go to college and they go, you know, I want, I, I want that community. I want to make sure that I don't miss that. Don't miss the reality of how our church shapes the next generation simply by the practices we do every single week. And if we don't do those things, if kids and students don't see circles of adults, they don't think it's normal. They don't think it's normal. So when people say, why is it that we do intergenerational groups and things like that? It's because we want kids and students to know groups and circles are normal. Opening the Bible together is normal. Sharing a meal is normal. Sharing requests is normal. Walking with people, showing up to help somebody move, showing up to clean up the mess of somebody's life is normal. 
That's what the church does. Is that easy? No. If it was easy, Paul would have used a different picture than the family and the household of God. So when you, whenever you think, you know what? Church is really messy. We're probably on the right track. The moment you think relationships in church are really hard, we're probably on the right track. The moment that you think, you know what? I'd really like to be in a group with those people. Like, I'd like that. There was some point in your life where you grew up and you looked around your family and you thought, you know what? I'd like a different family. We're on the right track. See, Paul gives us this picture so we go, this is what community is like. This is what groups are like. This is what teams are like. Do we always get to serve with the person that is our favorite person? No. No. But that's okay. That's okay. Because you're also somebody's least favorite person. Okay? Don't forget that. And Paul says we're to be the household. Okay? Here's... Here's my hope. I think one of the ways for the church to be irresistible in our culture is to treat everyone with honor and respect. To treat everyone with honor and respect. That's one of the ways for our church to be irresistible. Then Paul says, he tells us how we do this. He says in verse three, support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. And so Paul, he he takes a picture of, of talking about widows and I think what he's doing here is he's one, talking about widows, which is the most vulnerable group of the first century. Okay, in the first century, it, it, there, was, there was no life insurance policies, there's no social security, you know, there's no retirement plans, there's not a pension that people had, like there's nothing. And, and so your family had to take care of you and if your family didn't take care of you, somebody else had to or else you were destitute. And so I think in our culture, as we think about this for our church, yes, it's about widows, but it's also about who might be the most vulnerable group in our church. And that vulnerable group might be widows. It might be people, as they get older, it may be single parents. It may be people with disabilities. It may be parents who are parenting kids with disabilities or kids from hard places. And so what Paul is saying is that we need to be on the lookout as a church for those with genuine need. Now, here's why I think this is such an important phrase is because we have this idea as a church where we, we just want to help as many people as possible. But Paul says the church is to make sure that we help the people who have the most need. I think it's interesting that he says those who are genuinely in need, which means that there are people Paul has in mind who are not genuinely in need, at least from his perspective. Which, let's be honest for a moment, that does not sound loving. Sounds judgmental. And yet, here it is in the Bible. And Paul is saying, as a church, we need to think through, okay, how is it that we make sure that people don't fall through the cracks? How do we have some kind of system and tears to make sure, okay, this is a need that we can meet, a need that we should meet, and this is one that we can't or we shouldn't. And he goes through a different criteria. And here's the thing. We have this idea as as Christians. We have this idea 
where Paul tells him in, in verse nine, he says, enroll the widows in a list. And he says, These, this is the way that you put a widow into the list. That does not sound loving to us. And yet what Paul is doing is he's saying, make sure as a church that you can be the household of God. Because just like in your household now and in your household growing up, there were decisions that you made about time, there were decisions that you made about money, there were seasons where he said we can do this and seasons where he said we can't do this. And Paul says the church is the same way. Now here's why this is so important as we think about how we make sure that the, the most vulnerable among us don't get lost, how we make sure that intergenerational relationships happen. Because when he says to make sure that they have a genuine need, that is not just financial. That is also emotional, that is spiritual, that is relational, that is mental. And so meeting that need, supporting somebody, may be financial, may be giving them money. It may be giving to the church through the benevolence fund. It also may just be sitting with somebody at a doctor's appointment. It may just be listening to somebody. It may be going over and playing chess with somebody. It may be going to a new mom and saying, hey, like, here's a meal. It may be going to a mom in your community group and saying, hey, I'll take your kids so that you can take a nap, take a shower, do whatever it is you need to do. Go, like, just stare at a wall by yourself. It could be that. It could be that. In each of our community groups, there's somebody who has the most need in this season. What does it look like to meet that? What does it look like to come alongside of that? You might think, okay, but like why, why though? I mean, just because that's in the Bible. Medical science actually backs up what's in the Bible. Here's the interesting thing of what happens with loneliness. According to the Harvard Medical School, loneliness is associated with being more sensitive to pain, suppression of the immune system, diminished brain function, less effective sleep, which makes an already lonely person more tired and irritable. For older people, loneliness is twice as unhealthy as obesity. Chronic loneliness increases a person, person's odds of death by 26%. But here's the thing. It's not just older people. Do you know what is the loneliest age group on the planet? 16 to 24-year-olds. 16 to 24-year-olds. So remember what I said about spiritual fathers and mothers? When we sit there and go, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say to a 16-year-old. I, I have a 16-year-old, I have two 14-year-olds and an 18-year-old, and half the time, I'm not even really sure what they're talking about. But we show up. We show up. We open our lives to them. We open our lives to their friends. And don't miss this if, you, if you're a parent of a teenager. When you open up your home to your friends, to your kids' friends, they have the opportunity to see the gospel in play. I can't tell you how many times we've had our kids' friends say, man, like, I, your house feels different. Like being hospitable to, to them. Why, because this is what the family of God is supposed to be like. And so Paul says to make sure as a church that people don't fall through the cracks. Do whatever you can. And, and here's the thing. As a church, we've worked really hard over this past year 
as we think through what are the systems of follow-up to make sure that we're able to meet needs? How do we make sure that we have the finances to meet needs, you know, whether it's you know, financial or emotional or spiritual? How do we come alongside of people to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks, to make sure we have money in our benevolence fund for things like that? Because we want to make sure that people get cared for and connected. And here's the thing. You are as connected to a community as you want to be. You are as connected to a community as you want to be. Every single one of us. I'm an introvert. I literally could survive without a community group. I could. And maybe you're like me and you think, you know what, I don't need to be in a group. I don't need to be on a team. Nobody needs me. I show up each week. No one knows that I'm here. The reason no one knows that you're here is because you have not jumped in. And so again, the way to be the household of God is jumping into a team, jumping into a group, introducing yourself to somebody next to you, meeting them. If you're older, jumping in with people half your age and saying, hey, what are you doing that's fun, young people? Hang out. Showing up, serving with students, serving with kids. Because again, the kids in our church do not need the coolest person. They just need the person that cares. And so the church, again, if, if I could tell you one of my hopes for our church, it is that we would live this out in a very clear picture of being the family of God. It's messy, it's hard, and it's beautiful.